Good morning, everybody. Happy New Year. Yeah, cozy group this morning. Good, good job getting to worship when it's so cold. Gold star worship day for each one of you. If I had them, I'd give them out. No, it's awesome to be here with you. Um, excited about the new year. And we're starting a new series and a new initiative this year. The focus of this year is discipleship. For the church, every year the focus is discipleship. But there's a special way in which we are focusing our hearts on discipleship this year. And one of those ways is the first Sunday of every month throughout the year, we're going to do a sermon on an essential Christian discipline or practice. Uh, Just one of those basic ways that practices of the ways of Jesus that are essential to grow in Christ. They are the, the scaffolding on which we can build a mature life in Jesus. Um, of the vine of the life of Christ needs a trellis on which to grow. And the practices of the Christian life form that trellis that allow Christ's life and his fruit to grow. And so we're going to look at those. We're going to look at scripture reading like today and, and fasting and how to engage in corporate worship in a way that's meaningful. We're going to look at silence and solitude and simplicity and generosity and, of course, prayer. Twelve practices over 12 months, building up our toolkit of disciplines so that we can grow as disciples of Christ. And today is scripture reading, spiritual reading of the scriptures. And to introduce us to that practice, I'm going to have us turn to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm 1 Uh, A psalm that talks not only about the benefits of Scripture reading, but it is a psalm that in one verse describes the ideal Scripture reader. And so, let's dig in. Psalm 1. This is God's Word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seed of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we want to be strong tree people. 
Psalm 1 people. Uh, people whose lives are so deeply rooted by whatever these streams of living water are so that we can endure tough seasons and be evergreen and everlasting and always bearing fruit. And apparently that means we need to be those who meditate on the law of the Lord. And so would you help us understand what that means? We give you praise and thanks. In Christ's name, amen. I love Psalm 1. Um, I did a fuller teaching on this text, kind of verse-like by verse a couple summers ago. You can find that on the website. Today we're really going to focus on one verse. But uh, first an overview. Uh, What a wonderful psalm. It begins with the contrast, of course, between two different ways of living. And it begins by saying, how blessed or how fortunate. The word can mean happy or even lucky (laughs) is the person who doesn't do three things. They don't walk, stand, or sit in the company of sinners and the wicked and the scoffers. Now notice that it doesn't say the blessed man, it doesn't say don't be wicked, don't sin, and don't scoff. It says don't listen to the counsel of the wicked. Don't pay attention to the way of the sinners. And don't sit at that table with the scoffers as they make their deliberations. And so the contrast here isn't between wickedness and righteousness. The contrast is being drawn and influenced to one place, being influenced or drawn to another place. Uh, The metaphor is about life as a journey, and your journey is towards the way of blessedness, the place of blessing and rootedness. And along the way, there's all of these voices that are trying to lead us down all of these false roads into dead-end streets, voices that promise wisdom and counsel and blessing but they're really fool's gold. They don't lead us towards life, flourishing, beauty, love, truth, justice. They lead us in the opposite direction. And there's this progression in the text between walking and then standing and then sitting. So you're walking to blessing. And you're hearing these voices, and then you you stop to listen, and then eventually you sit down and settle in and root yourself in that place. Um, You walk, you stand, and now you're rooted in this dead-end street. And what the text is saying is, of course, that we are people under unescapable influence, People trying to woo us um, away 
from the blessed life. And for those who listen to those voices, their life is poetically described as chaff, which the wind blows away, which some of us, we don't, we've never experienced chaff. And so when I had my new snowblower yesterday, self-propelled, so awesome, I would sell my car, my house, and all of my children's toys to keep this snowblower. It was so great, but I was trying to think of a good illustration. I just thought, as I saw the the snow blowing away so easily, the wicked are like the snow that my awesome snowblower blows away. Um, But it's, it's here, and then it's there, moved by the latest trend, by the loudest voice. Dowed in the dead-end streets and dark alleys. And ultimately blown away by the judgment of God. And that image is contrasted with the one who is like the tree. Rooted. Uh, and not sitting at the, the, the scoffer table. Ready to be blown away, but rooted in streams of water. These streams that apparently can give it life in every season and not only in spring and summer but in fall and winter so that it's evergreen and in the right season it's always ready to to bear fruit. And so whatever this this person has been doing it they haven't only just been able to keep the guardrails that have kept them on the the right path but they've grown into this tree person this strong resilient fruitful person and what has made what's what's made them that way and it says it's their relationship to what the scriptures call the law of the lord so this is verse two But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law they meditate day and night. So first, the law of the Lord. And in Hebrew, the word is just Torah. And we need to know that because when we hear law, we hear thou shalt nots. And uh, the Torah is a much broader category. It can narrowly refer to the first five books of the Bible or the the covenant literature of Moses, but more broadly, it's a term that's used to describe God's instruction to us in general. And that's what the word just means, instruction, the instruction of the scriptures, the narratives, the characters, all of God's counsels and words. So most often, this is a shorthand just for the Bible our holy scriptures. And that's almost certainly how it's being used here. And so the blessed, strong, resilient, fruitful person has a relationship to the Torah, the scriptures, that has led to these amazing qualities in their life. And we're told three things about the blessed person's relationship to the word of God. We're told how they feel about it, We're told what they do with it, and we're told how often they do it. (laughs) And so I just want to look at those things. 
First, we're told how the blessed person feels about the scripture. And how do they feel? They delight in the law of the Lord. They delight in it. Their primary posture, in other words, to the scriptures is not duty, but delight. And I like that. Because that's the only thing that's going to keep you from the, the sinners and the wicked and the scoffers. Because nobody walks in the way of the wicked out of duty. Nobody stands in the way of sinners because they have to. Nobody sits in the seat of scoffers out of duty. We walk and stand and sit where we do because we want to. And we want to because we've been watching and listening and considering. We've been meditating on something, though we may not call it that. And we've begun to delight in it. And here is someone who has left the sinners and the scoffers and the faithless ones behind, not because they had to, but because they wanted to. Because she found something better, more beautiful, more delightful. She can't keep her mind off of it. She thinks it's strong and wise and gracious. And so she dwells on it day and night, turning it over in her mind, speaking it to herself over and over, doing this not to, not to please God, though it does, but because the law of God pleases her. So this isn't the legalistic strategy of someone trying to earn their way to heaven. This is wise self-leadership. The wise self-leadership of a person who finds their joy in the Lord and doesn't want to forfeit that joy for lesser pleasures. Delight. It's so important. And it's so important that we're scared when we don't have it. And we'll talk about that later. Because we fear when we read the Bible and we don't delight in it. Because we know we're supposed to. But for now, I just want you to see this. That when it talks about the ideal reader of the scripture, it's a person whose that duty isn't the driving force ultimately. In the end, it's delight. You won't be able to sustain a practice of reading scripture over a lifetime if duty is your only motivation. But if it's delight. So that's how they feel. They delight now let's talk about but what, they, what do they do with it, this thing that they're delighting in. And it says, what do they do? They meditate on it. They meditate day and night. Um, I don't know what image comes to your mind when you hear the word meditation. Meditation is kind of uh, an in vogue term. Um, associated with so many Eastern meditative practices, uh, the current mindfulness movement. Man, everybody's doing yoga. We're all sitting quietly, emptying our mind, doing our breathing techniques. And that's great. There's so much benefit that comes from paying attention to one's breathing. Um, so much wisdom in those things. But biblical meditation is so different. 
than that. Uh, In Eastern meditation, a person is trying to empty their mind. Biblical meditation is all about filling your mind. And filling your mind with something other than your own thoughts. Filling your mind with God's thoughts. Christ's thoughts. Thinking with the mind of Christ, as Paul would say. Renewing our mind, as Paul would say. The Hebrew word here is Hagah. Can you say Hagah? Nice. Uh, It's used a number of times in the scriptures, 20 or so times. And it's usually a word that describes something that an animal does. Um, And so the word is later on used by the prophet Isaiah to describe the way that a lion growls over its prey. Have you ever had like a dog that you got too close to them when they had a bone or food and they make a noise? And what's the noise? Hagah. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a low rumbly growly sound. And then it's used in Ezekiel 7 and in the book of Isaiah to describe the sound that a dove makes. Like, what is the sound that a dove makes? Hey, that was really good. Who was that? You could like, you could call real doves. And we have, we have a word for that. What's the word for it? Coo. it's this in both cases it's this primal low guttural sound and apparently that's what the lucky and blessed person does with the scriptures and the picture is of a person sitting in the quiet with the bible reading it out loud themselves quietly or more likely just walking it around they've read it so often they haven't memorized they're just saying the verse blessed is the man who wants not and so i really think that that's what it means and so john golden gay when he translates this verse he says rather his delight is in yahweh's instruction and he murmurs about his instruction day and night The picture is of someone who's read the scriptures out loud to themselves, filled their minds with it, and they're walking around, ruminating on a phrase or a story or a verse or a puzzle that they've found there. They've kept company with these words and familiarized themselves with them enough that then when they encounter a moment of temptation or need or hardship, or challenge, these words are right there at the ready, like streams of water that you can access at any time because you filled your mind with them. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Or lately for me, My shield is with God, who saves the upright 
in heart. This is what the author has done. They've, they've taken these verses. They've spent hours with them. Like a dog with a bone. Like a lion with its prey. Playing with it. Chewing it. Ingesting it. Taking their time. Hiding it. Coming back later. Taking it back again. Chewing on it. Getting it into their system. So that they're constantly drawing nourishment and strength from it. Hagah! Meditating, saying it out loud quietly to yourself on such a regular basis that you're thinking about it constantly. You have access to it all the time. So they delight in the law of the Lord. They hagah on the Torah of the Lord. And then finally, how often do they do this? Day and night. That this is a habitual practice. It's day and night. In other words, it's at least it's not a one-time thing. It's morning and evening. It's happening with regularity. It's systematic and habitual. In other words, one doesn't become the Psalm 1 blessed tree person by accident, but by habitual practice and discipline. Day and night. And the language of day and night doesn't just speak of habit and discipline. It also speaks of a length of time. So every day, and I think implied here, is for a lifetime. That the Bible has been designed to be the type of literature that you read and think about and meditate on for a lifetime. The the type of literature that rewards those who come to it year in and year out, time and time again. Everybody knows that my favorite book is the Bible because I'm a pastor, but most people know what my my second favorite book is, which is what? Lord of the Rings, for sure. Yeah, when I was 12 years old, I read the line while I was staying over at my grandparents' house on the farm. I took a book that looked really interesting to me from my mom's library. She had read The Hobbit in, in college. And I remember being so scared. It was my first time staying overnight at the farm by myself. And I was underneath my covers like with the flashlight. And I opened up this old book and I read the line, In the hole in the ground there lives a hobbit. And I've been hooked ever since. And I've read uh, The Lord of the Rings a bunch of times. I used to read the trilogy every single year. And then I started to read just one of the books a year. Now I've kind of become a, a slacker. But I kept tally of the times that I read the darn thing. And, and I, after 15, I lost track. And I felt okay losing track because I was certain that my devotion was no longer in question. <laughs> uh, and while I don't read the Burks with that regularity, I still find myself going back to them time and time Again, And it's not just nostalgia. They've rewarded those readings. 
Here's the good thing. Good art rarely gives up its secrets easily. On the first read or the first view. Which is why there's like documentaries that are released dissecting great movies. Like The Shining or Apocalypse Now or whatever. It's why people line up and travel all the world to see the Mona Lisa. Haven't you seen a picture of the Mona Lisa? Or Starry Night. Or why young people discover old music like David Bowie and the Beatles. There are reasons that go beyond just the pure enjoyment of these things. There's depth there that rewards repeated listenings, viewings. And so we linger there. They create puzzles and ambiguities and mysteries. Sometimes these, these artwork, they excite us and sometimes they frustrate us. And then we go back to it and now it's the tenth time through and we see something. Oh my goodness, how did I not notice this before? This is huge. This changes everything and you have to read the whole thing over again in light of the new insight. Good movies and good books are like that. They don't give up their secrets right away. And the Bible is like that only more so. More so in the ways that can leave us puzzled and frustrated and more so in the ways that it can reward those who stick with it to find the treasure hidden deep inside. Implied in the day and night here is that there's enough in the scripture to read and think about every day for the rest of your life and you will never exhaust the depth or the richness of what's there. I'm just going to take Psalm 1 as an example because it's the text we're looking at. Psalm 1 is awesome. It's an awesome piece of poetry. And if you had no context of the rest of the Bible and its story, you just had Psalm 1, you could come away with something. I could give this poem to my eight-year-old son and he could tell me true and beautiful things about it. But let's say you did have the rest of the Bible and you were used to reading it. Let's say you started your Bible reading plan yesterday because it was January. And let's say you found yourself in Genesis 1 because it was January. And let's say that you were reading about the creation story and you were reading about trees of life that promised fruit that was everlasting and streams of living water that gave life to a dead and dusty creation. And you thought to yourself, trees, streams, fruit that never dies, the potential for everlasting life. You know, I think I've seen that imagery before in Psalm 1. And you begin to make connections. And you see that the tree stuff in Psalm 1 isn't just pretty imagery. It's Eden imagery. It's talking about how we get back to the garden or perhaps about how we get the garden back inside of us. And then you sit there and you linger on Psalm 1 and it enhances your understanding of that psalm. And then you go back and you read Genesis chapter 1 and 2 
and you take Psalm 1 back there and it enhances your reading of that psalm. And then a couple of months later, because you stuck with it, you find yourself in Joshua. Man, Leviticus and Deuteronomy were hard. There were hard passages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, but now you're in Joshua chapter 1. And it's talking about courage and strength. And you get there and it's talking about Joshua and it's preparing him for the spiritual battles that he'll have to fight. And it tells him what he's going to need to be successful. And it says, don't Joshua go to ninja training camp. That's not what you need to fight. Don't go to Navy SEAL training. What you need is to be a person who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. That's what it says. And then you notice that there's all this other shared vocabulary between Joshua 1 and Psalm 1. And then you realize that the Psalm 1 writer didn't just have creation in mind. He'd been meditating on Joshua and what it takes to be a real spiritual warrior. And then you begin to read Psalm 1 in light of Joshua 1 and Joshua 1 in light of Psalm 1, and you begin to think about what it means to fight in the Christian life and what it means to succeed and prosper. And then you've made it all the way to the fall. Finally, the New Testament. Man, the prophets. That was a slog. Ezekiel, are you joking me? I don't think, I'm a pastor, I don't think I've ever read through all of Ezekiel. I'm joking. (laughs) But you come, and now you're in Hebrews. It's like November. You're almost there. You're in Hebrews, and you get to the line in Hebrews 10 where it says, when Christ came into the world, he said, here I am. I delight to do your will, O God. Thy law is in my heart. And you think, oh, that's almost a direct quote from Psalm 1. And Hebrews says that Jesus is the one who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night and delights in it. And then you begin to think, oh man, he really did that. I never forgot this. I learned this in seminary. Out of the uh, 1,800 verses where Jesus is speaking in the New Testament, in 180 of those 1,800 verses, 10%, he quotes the Bible. So 10% of everything that we know of that Jesus ever said is a quotation from the scriptures. He was saturated with the scriptures. He hagod on the scriptures day and night so that he could pull from them at any given moment. Even on the cross, he quotes a psalm. And then you begin to think about, you go back to Psalm 1 and you begin to think about what it means that Jesus fulfills it. And that he's the true Psalm 1 person. And then you begin to take Psalm 1 and you begin to read all of Jesus' life in light of it. And you end the year and what you've done is you've meditated. This is is what the, the reader of Scripture does. They move forward and backward through the text. Uncovering more of the unified whole. 
The one true story that leads to Jesus woven into all of these seemingly disconnected stories with all of these unanswered questions, all of these troubling passages, but somehow they bind together, find fulfillment, add to meaning, answer one another's puzzles. It's a staggering literary achievement, the scriptures. A beautiful and provocative work of art that combines narrative and poetry and discourse. It's crafted to be read and reread over a lifetime and to give up new dimensions of wisdom and truth with, with each journey across its pages. It's almost as if God himself were behind the whole thing. And the outcome of this all is this person who is like the tree planted by streams of water. This garden of Eden image that they've, t- they've taken the fruit of the eternal tree and it's like they've become a tree themselves. Fruitful, strong, everlasting. So how do we apply this to our life? Read your Bible more. No, I'm, I'm, I, that's kind of the application, but we're going to make it more meaningful. What does this mean for our lives? First, I think it means that we shouldn't be surprised if our delight in the Bible doesn't always feel like delight. I think that many of us think we're missing something when we can't bring ourselves to love the Bible in the same way that we love a roller coaster ride (laughs) or our favorite food or TV show. But delighting in the Bible isn't that simple. Most of you know very well that you can hold a very deep affection for a work of art that doesn't necessarily entertain you in the simple sense. It isn't just there for fun. And many of you know what it means to love a work of art that you don't fully understand yet. And that's a part of why you love it. Or to love a work that's so complex that it bothers you in portions. The Bible is so profoundly complex that it makes me wonder why we think our appreciation of it would ever be simple. Our delight in it grows, and it ebbs, and it flows. There are times when we approach Scripture, whether in private study or gathered worship, and we find it memorable and powerful. Sermons we quote, verses we carry around with us, Stories of being impacted and changed. But there are other times when the scriptures seem as unappetizing as stale bread. And you are bored and confused or skeptical or repulsed. Me too. There are times when you can walk away from the scriptures with more questions than answers. We live in a fallen world and we can be like dwarves in C.S. Lewis's Narnia tales who have a delectable feast set before them. But because there's a curse, we can mistake it for its food for revolting, unappetizing, poisonous food. How should we respond 
when we find the word perplexing or boring or unappealing? I think the text would say, you keep on eating. You keep listening. You keep learning. You wait on God to give us what you need to sustain you for one more day. And you acknowledge that there's far more wonder in this life and wonder in this book than we have yet eyes to see or stomachs to digest. And we can receive it as a gift. There are some things in the Bible that are abundantly clear, and there are some things that take a lifetime to work out. And we can get frustrated at the Bible, um, but our frustration comes from wanting to go fast, I think, when the Bible wants to go slow. And notice that all the imagery in the poem is slow. Fruit growing, roots going down deep, night and day, over a lifetime. This is something that doesn't give up its treasures overnight. It takes a lifetime of reading and rereading. It's meant to be read and reread and pondered and wrestled with. And that is supposed to encourage us rather than dissuade us from reading. Because when I don't get something in the scriptures these days, I'm like, maybe 10 years from now. I'll understand that. And there have been puzzles that have taken 10 years for me to finally figure out. But to keep reading with that kind of regularity, you need a game plan. The psalm would say, you need some kind of plan. You need some kind of system. It's not just going to happen by osmosis. And it can look any number of ways. And I just went and I asked some of our elders and leaders how they're going to read the scriptures this year. Greg and Paula Baker are slowly moving through a study Bible together systematically. Sam and Molly McEwen are beginning the Gospel Coalition Bible Plan in January. Good luck to you, McEwens. Uh, a number of us on staff, including myself, use the Book of Common Prayer and the lectionary found there to guide our readings. And they'll take you through the Bible either in one year or two year, and you read through the Psalms every month. Mark and Sally are doing the Bible Project Plan. They've done it a number of years, and they're doing it with their small group. That's a wonderful idea. When I asked Crystal, this is what she texted me back. I'll just quote her. I've decided to wallpaper my bedroom with pages from the New Living Translation and quite literally live in the scriptures. But seriously, I'll continue the daily office readings read to me most mornings through the ESV app. And I hope to add scripture memory this year to my routine. There's no one right way to read the scriptures. Some people read slowly and prayerfully. A practice called Lectio Divina, which we'll talk about in our Ed Hour course. Some prefer reading large swaths in one sitting. Some read in quiet. Some read out loud. Some alone. Others with friends and family. Some listen to podcasts or read books. To, to make the experience go deeper. But the point is that it's habitual, systematic, moving forward, night and day, 
in long and short sessions, slowly and carefully, with ongoing consideration, gaining new insights as you are shaped and formed by this text over time. Friends, when we sit with this book, we step into the story of God. And when we do, we can rest in the ambiguity and delight in the strangeness of it. We can wrestle with the questions it raises and marvel at its beauty slowly, carefully, one morning at a time, one reading at a time, for a lifetime. There's more at stake here than a daily duty. This book has the unique power to form us. And some of us feel like we're drifting like snow or like chaff in the wind. And what the scripture is saying is that this book, if you let it, can lead you to Christ. And in that place of the streams of water of his grace, you can become a powerful tree that will never be uprooted from the way of blessedness. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this word out of Psalm 1. And my prayer for us as a community is that as we travel through and consider these different spiritual practices and disciplines, that your spirit would be at work among us graciously to help us build the little, the trellises for our lives um, that will hold more fruit, that will help us grow as disciples of Jesus, that will help spiritually form us as men and women in Christ, that will help us bear fruit, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, and will help us become more joyful loving, patient, kind, gentle, restrained, hopeful people. And so help us uh, to dig our roots into you. We would be remiss not to pray for more delight and desire to be in your word. And so I pray for that for myself. And I pray for that for everyone here and everyone that's a part of grace That our desire for your word would grow. And that you would sustain us when it's tough. When we have questions. We we come across something that doesn't like challenge us morally. It, It just challenges us. It's just a really hard portion of scripture. And that your spirit would help us and guide us and lead us to Jesus. And help us to see. Oh man, I don't know what this all means. But it leads to him. And he loved it. He was saturated with it. 10% of everything that he said was was scripture. And that would lead us to want to cultivate the mind of Christ. And so I just hold up our lives before you. Asking for you to help us become Psalm 1 tree people. (laughs) And I pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.